This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That to say that I'm joined this evening by former Brighton, Celtic, Coventry, Colchester and a few other clubs as well. Defender Adam Virgo. Adam has um, played the game. He's also been a pundit and analysing the game and he now runs his own football academy which has been very successful. First of all, Adam, how are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Um, just just trying to, to keep ticking along and just, just trying to keep sane and... Uh, watching the news every hour to see what's changed and what's not changed. But, you know, it's good to see football back on the TV and, you know, a small bit of normality, but it's still uncertain times for a lot of people. But, you know, I'm healthy and, um, you know, my family have been well through this period. So for me, that you know, that's, that's the main thing, really. It certainly is. And I'm glad to hear that. I mentioned in the intro there, the Academy, that's a project that you've um, been working on for a while now, just just sum up how successful the academy's been in in the role for you on a sort of daily basis. Yeah, it's it's been something I've been, I thought about when I retired um, to, to to get into, um, but I almost made a decision either to go to the academy side and set up my own business or to do the media, and the media side took off really really quickly, and it almost went one direction and. I almost had to make a decision of what I wanted to do. And because the media was doing so well, I had to put it on hold for a few years. And then after a while, it gave me time to think about what I wanted to do and how I wanted to set it up. Um, and, you know, learning from other academies that I'd been working in and, and seeing things from the outside. Um, but I, I really wanted to set something up that was for, you know, we, we, we say it's, it's for all abilities, it, it doesn't really matter that children can come along and and enjoy their football. I'm I'm really really um, feel strongly about um, children probably between the ages of six and twelve to enjoy their football more than maybe be put a lot of pressure on to go into that academy system straight away and get told at seven or eight years old that you're not good enough and you kind of just get taken in and out of the system. And I was I was really conscious of being a dad myself and the way that I grew up in football, I didn't think I wanted to be a professional footballer, but at that stage, I just enjoyed playing with my friends. And that's the kind of attitude that I've taken into the academy. Because for me, teaching an eight-year-old is about coaching. And I believe I've got good coaches that can teach all abilities. And, that, and that's the main thing for me. Listen, if we can produce a professional footballer, fantastic. The likelihood of me doing that is very, very small. But the likelihood of me bringing children in enjoying their football, gaining their confidence and going off as better people and better when they first came in is is more proud for me. I, I sometimes get more joy of teaching someone how to learn the basics and then they go on and join a team and do really, really well than maybe bring on someone that's done very well. We build them up and then we send them off to Crystal Palace or Brighton, wherever. I'm. That's still very rewarding, don't get me wrong, but I think sometimes I've just kind of thought of the other side that um, maybe academies only have one kind of 
pathway and that's just children with good ability can do this can do that but for me it was just about something different and um, it's, it's been really successful and you know we get good reviews and you know we've got a good rapport with the parents we've got great kids there got great coaches um so it's it's a good enjoyment for me outside of, of doing the media work and in terms of coaching you're clearly passionate about football you're clearly passionate about developing young players and you mentioned the reviews I, I've, I've seen them from with own eyes the reviews are, are absolutely fantastic would you consider going into coaching and management at a more senior level in football or when you're working the media has that shown you that it's so cutthroat that really it's more rewarding to work with young players yeah it's it's, it's a great question um it, the, the the thing is because i've built such a good platform in the media um for me to walk away from that, to walk into management or into coaching within a football club has to be right. I can't afford to, to move away and give up something. I've worked so hard to build up a, a reputation and a, and a place. Because the minute I leave the commentating side, someone else is waiting to come in. But, you know, if the, if the right job became available, then I would seriously consider it. Um, but it's... It's a real difficult one because there's no guarantee in football now, isn't there? There's, it's very, very difficult to say, I want to be a manager. Uh, you get a job and then all of a sudden you're sacked after a few games. And it's, unfortunately, that's, that's the way it is. Um, and when, when I've done my badges and, and you talk about um, coaching at a, a younger level, sounds bad saying this but the money's not that great being an under 18 under 19 under 20 coach considering what you're going to be walking away from it's not all about money but you have to kind of think realistically as well that what an under 23 coach gets in an academy level people think it's kind of up there but it's they they you know they get so much more out of you for a lot less and when I was doing my B license that was one of the big things that was spoken about was that maybe why people don't go into the coaching side is because financially at that level that the money's not quite there even though you may have the prestige of coaching at an academy club or a club that's in the premier league um unless you've kind of made it right at the top and the finance side of it's not important then sometimes that's why you don't see people going into coaching but listen it, it's something i've always wanted to do and i think i will give it a go but it has to be the right time and i haven't really thought about it yet but i think there will come a time where probably in the next few years where I'll, I'll seriously start putting down a bit more of a CV, getting more hours under my belt. And, but learning the game, I've, I've, you know, I've learned so much in the media. And when I do the National League, the, the coverage that we get from me meeting managers is night and day. You know, I can go into a manager's office. I can sit down with them. I can talk to them. I was up at Dagenham and Redbridge today with Daryl McMahon. I watched a training session. So much info and I get so much, so much more of an insight. And, you know, what managers have to go through, sometimes if you know what's going to happen, it sometimes puts you off because it's such a hard job to do, really. But um, it's something in, in my mind. But at the moment, everything that I'm doing at the moment is, is ticking along nicely. In terms of the, the punditry side and, and analysing football, one of the things that I'm always interested in, I've had quite a few ex-pros on who went into the media, but I've actually never asked this question. When you decide to go into the media, is it difficult at first when you go in because guys that you played with, you may be commentating or analysing. How did you decide to approach that? Did you decide to approach it in a sense that I'm going in, it's my job, I'll analyse it as I see it? Or is it natural to sometimes, if you know someone, be a bit lighter on them? 
yes it's again another good question it's um i think it's harder i i, I sometimes cringe a tiny bit that people that still play and then all of a sudden they're still on the radio like i heard troy Deeney the other day talking away about arsenal and things and i think sometimes when you're still playing the game and then starting to analyze it and be slightly critical of players while you're still playing is sometimes you know it's a brave thing to do but you listen people people still do it and i think people now think that coming towards the end of their careers where they want to go you know you have to start dipping your toe in the in the ocean there a little bit um I, I just got some great advice from from Grant Best, who was head of BT when I first went in there. And he just told me to be myself. And I, I just analyse the game that I see. And I think if you give constructive views and you give honest views, I think a, a fan or the, the paying public may understand a little bit more. I don't, I'm, I'm never a fan of constantly criticising clubs all the time and constantly going after managers and constantly being negative all the time because... I think if you're like that all the time, and I think sometimes people do it for effect. I think people quite like that that persona of a Simon Cowell kind of bad guy thing of just being constantly negative and moaning about everything, especially the way of social media is today. It's just like people love that side. But I think that the angle that I took um, was to be honest of how I evaluate the game. And, and I kind of think on the side that these are human beings as well that make mistakes and they're honest mistakes because I made a mistake as a player and, you know, I'm, you get judged on that, but you don't do it on purpose. And I think that when I give an honest view, I think fans actually, and if you're kind of explaining it in a way to people to understand it, I think you can get through to, I think that's why Gary Neville comes across quite well because he, he speaks a lot of sense where you'll probably get a couple of other pundits that just kind of just constantly criticise and moan about everything and, you know, dig people out all the time. and when they do say something positive, it doesn't seem to come across as, as good because you're just constantly being negative. But that, it was kind of just just be yourself. And I think people then get to know you as a person a little bit more. Because I guarantee you, I know three or four pundits out there that are completely different to how they are on the TV, that they'll come across and, and be like this. But then when you meet them in person, they're, they're totally different. And I think that sometimes can get mixed up in, in the way that you want to present yourself um, as a pundit. Absolutely. I think you're right. There's a lot of people who like to highlight the problem rather than offer the solution. And I think that's that's something that you definitely see a lot of. In terms of your footballing career, who was your hero growing up? It was Paul Gascoigne for me. Um, I I loved I loved football from, from day dot. And um, I think the Italian 90 World Cup was my first major tournament that I remember as a child sitting around the TV and, and watching the fact that England did well um, kind of got me glued to, to be in football. And I just remember seeing Paul Gascoigne play and I was very much in, in awe of, of who he was and, and how he played. And um, I, I was just like, who, who, you know, who is this player, Paul Gascoigne? I then ended up becoming a Tottenham fan because of him playing for Tottenham at the time. And if he was playing for Newcastle, I'd probably end up being a Newcastle fan because the next season Tottenham won the FA Cup. Um, and wherever I went um, in my career, I tried to ask for the number 19 shirt because that's the number he wore in the World Cup, 19. So that was always trying to, to follow me everywhere I went. I didn't always get it at the clubs I went to, but I always asked for it. Um, and that was just more of a, an appreciation of him 
of what he did for me in my career. And I, I met him once. Um, we played Newcastle in a testimonial at Celtic and he, he was kind of doing stuff at halftime and I met him and um, he didn't look too well then, but I kind of went up to him and just said, you probably don't know who I am, but I can't say how much you've done for me. You've given me the belief to be a footballer when I was a kid and I wanted to be like you and stuff. And I think he was quite emotional. And then when he hears someone say that, it's, you know, it's, it's, you, you can affect someone's life like that. So, yeah, it was Paul Gascoigne when I was younger. Then probably when I was in my teenage years, it was probably David Beckham that kind of then, when I was sort of like 14 and 15, looked up to to, to try and emulate. Brighton were your first professional club. When was the first time, though, that you thought you had a chance of making it as a professional? It, it happened quite late for me, to be honest, because... Um, I wasn't really getting very far in terms of being recognised by many clubs. And there was one or two players in and around me, especially in my school team, that were getting trials here and trials there. Um, and it wasn't until when my school did well in a, in a cup competition that we bought in. So I always believed that I was good enough to do it, but I was kind of losing heart a little bit that I just was never really getting an opportunity or being even spoken about of trials or, or, or anything, really. Um, and I was probably about 15 when I started to really, really gain momentum. And I mentioned my school team got to this uh, national final where they brought in Martin Hinchwood, who was head of youth at Brighton and of Albion, to come in and, and coach and just sort of be on the sidelines, really. Um, and he took a real liking to me. Um, and then he, when I was about 15, his son was manager of a team called Selzy. Um, it's like a county team. Um, very low down, but um, I learned so much playing with men. Um, and I, I, re I was only down there for six months. And I remember um, then all of a sudden, it, there's a local paper in Brighton called the Argus. And all of a sudden you're getting write-ups in the Argus and starting to gain, a, you know, and I was only 15 and I was playing against men. And I just remember people saying, you know, this is the, this is the best thing now coming out of Brighton at the moment. And, um, you know, one to watch kind of thing. So I was probably about 15 when I felt I had a chance, but you always feel you've got a chance until you've got a chance. And then thankfully, when I was 16, I was, I was given an opportunity to, to go and train at Brighton and then start working my, up, my way up the ranks. And in terms of every young player, when you're coming through, I always imagine that the first team debut is, is a massive milestone, but at the same time, it's, it must be a day filled with mixed emotions. How did you handle your debut? It was, it was great. Um, I was very, I was very humble in my approach into, into Brighton. I was still very, very respectful of um, all the senior because I was actually given a pro contract instead of a YTS contract. So um, I, I was still doing all the jobs that, that you did as a YTS person, even though I didn't have to do them, but I still felt that I needed to, to do that. So I, I just remember cleaning out the dressing room still. And I remember Mickey Adams coming down and he was like, what are you doing? I said, he goes, I was doing my job. He said, you know, don't do, you've got to leave in a couple of hours, get on the bus. And um, I remember it was, it was Brentford in the LDV, which is now called the Checker Trade Trophy. Um, and I made quite a quick procession uh, into the first team. Um, I was on the bench quite a few times um, early on. I, I was expected to go in, have a year in the youth team and then, you know, progress on and see what happened. But I went in really, really early and I was on the bench. I was traveling with the first team. Um, and we played Brentford in the in the Checker Trade Trophy. Um, player got sent off, and I just remember 
warming up and you never imagine the manager to turn around to you and say, you know, and then all of a sudden the assistant manager then was Alan Court, screamed my name and then, I don't know if you can swear, but you kind of think, oh my God, well, you know, you know, shit, what's, I'm coming on now kind of thing. And then you, you kind of come back and you, your stomach's going. Um, and all you're thinking is just don't make a mistake. That's, that's all you think is just don't make a mistake and just get through the game and get a good steady six out of 10 and just kind of, and I, and I played really, really well. And um, I then managed to make my first team debut in the league the following Saturday against Mansfield. Then I got man of the match. And in true Mickey Adams style, he then dropped me to kind of just, I think when I got to know him a lot more, at the, when I got, <clears throat> so I played for him four times and I think it was just more like, there's the carrot. You've had a little taste of it now. You need to work harder. And I, at the time I was fuming because I thought I've just played well. And he, he dropped, he, he dropped me, he didn't drop me from the whole squad. He just put me back on the bench. And then I just kind of had to re, re go again. And, um, I think it's more when you make your debut, um, it's a proud moment for yourself. It, you know, it is. Um, I think people who make debuts for your hometown club and stuff is, is always very, very special. But I think it's more for your parents that sacrifice everything for you growing up. Financially, we weren't rich, but my mum and dad always got me the boots that I could get, kits and, and everything. And you kind of, you think about them more. And even your mates that kind of, were always the ones who kind of went towards the going out stages and stuff. And you always have a strong mind and stuff. And they're like, don't follow us, stay at home and, you know, really look after you. And I think when I made my debut, there's about six or seven people that were there that um, had done a lot for me. And then you kind of think of people at school that helped you. And it's probably more, it probably means more to them than you to a certain extent, even though it means a lot to you, but that's your job. That's what you're paid to do. And I think, when you see people, it's like it's probably a more prouder moment for the people that have seen you grow up as a, a five-year-old into a teenager than, than to make your debut. You mentioned Mickey Adams there. He's a manager who has always fascinated me as a character. Um, obviously, he's, he's had quite a few jobs and he always seems like a guy who can be very funny, but at the same time, he just also appears as if he's got a really serious streak that he can use when he has to. Yeah, I mean, he still scares me now. When I see, it's it's weird. I, I I when I was younger, I was so scared of him. And I remember when I used to go into meetings with him, I would literally stutter my words when I when he would say so. I I just didn't know how to. He just had this aura about him that he, he would scare anybody, especially young kids. He was he was really really strict on. And um, but then when he became assistant manager at Colchester when I was there. I got to know the person a lot more and when he and when I signed for Brighton the second time I still had that fear factor with him but I kind of knew the other side of him but as my education as a young kid it was it was absolutely massive and he was still very much like that throughout his career in terms of um, being stricter on the, the younger pros but trusting the senior pros to uh, to run the dressing room um, but yeah I mean I owe everything to him because he's given me the my debut, my first contract, signed me a few times. So for Mickey Adams, he's always been a, a massive part of my career. But even when I see him now, if I see him at a game or I bump into him, I still think of myself as that 17-year-old of seeing him and I'd still kind of, I'd kind of freeze a little bit. But then when you start talking, it's fine. But it's just a weird thing that I still have that aura about him that he's going to tell me off or, you know, just kind of say something to me that, that kind of puts me back in my place. 
And in terms of Brighton, some of the younger listeners will know Brighton now as a, as a Premier League club. They've got a lovely stadium that's up there with the best in the, in the Premier League. But when you played for Brighton, especially in your first spell, it was, it, was, it was very different. The club, for want of a better phrase, you could describe at times as a yo-yo club in the sense that you win quite a few promotions, you come back down, then you're going back up. What was it like in that first spell at Brighton when you were going through that period in the Football League? Yeah, it was. Um, I mean, they they'd sold their ground and they'd spent a couple of years at Gillingham, and then they came back to the Withdean Stadium, which was almost like an athletics track that they had to bring temporary stands in um, to, to to make up a stadium. But I had a really good dressing room of strong characters when I first went into that football club that I think helped me become who I was as a footballer in terms of respecting the, your, your managers and your senior players and how they dealt with me, always put an arm around me, but then kind of were firm with me on that side. Um, but I remember my first year in League Two, we won, then we went into League One, won that, went up to the Championship, got relegated, went back down to League One, then got promoted again. And then we had a year in the in the Championship before I moved on to Celtic. So it was, it was, it was, it was literally just up and down, up and down. I think in five years, I played four different divisions, which was, um, which was good, you know. I mean, it was just showing how far the club had come where in 96 they were almost extinct from from going out into the football league but you know how things have changed i mean i i was we we used to go home and wash our own kit you know we were we had bags of training kit that we had to take home and wash didn't have any kit men um food wasn't really provided at the ground at the time it was almost like you train and you go home that the gym was the university so we had to use the university gym you go in there and they're like uni students doing weights with you and stuff so it was a completely different setup to to what the players have now but I think the good thing about that was at the time is we just never used that as an excuse I think we used that to our advantage and um, there, there were a lot of teams that we beat on the day because they they almost looked at the Withdean at the time and just thought you know I remember playing Derby and I remember Ravinelli coming to play and I remember him walking out and in the warm-up and he, he was kind of looking around the stadium thinking I could have sworn I played in the Olympic Stadium in Juventus and stuff and here I am playing here and I, I just think sometimes the bigger players in the championship would just kind of come in and think, you don't fancy today. And we always just had that mentality of going against teams. And I think when you look back at the, the Withdean years at Brighton, I think we won four or five promotions and five, four or five championships, which were in a 10-year period was a, a very, very strong period. And the important thing for the club at the time was to, when they went into the Amex, had to be in the championship won the league before they went into the championship and you know now the fans and you know seek the rewards of Premier League football and watching their team every Saturday well not the minute but most you know before seeing their teams on a Saturday uh, playing in the Premier League so th- they deserve it and um, you know f- you know it's it's a good club um, and you know I always still wish them wish them the very best. This might seem like a simplistic question but as a football fan and someone who likes the football league, obviously in Scotland and down south, what's the difference when you go from League Two to League One, then League One to the Championship? Is it physicality? Is it the pace of the game? Is it just technical quality? What changes as you go up the level? Well, I think League Two to League One, I probably wouldn't say there's a big deal of difference in terms of the football that's played. It's still physical and it's still pretty direct. Um, when I was there, it was kind of there were never there's probably one or two outstanding teams that kind of played decent football and 
but the, the difference wasn't really too too much in, in, in all honesty. I think when you go from League One into the Championship, there's a golfing class um, in terms of you you I mean you're playing against players in the in the League One that will probably be on a couple of grand a week. You go into the Championship, and then you're playing against players that are on 25, 30 grand a week, and you 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 just get that quality, and you'll get those youngsters that that will be loaned out from the Premier League playing in the Championship that will be the next best thing. I remember playing against Gareth Bale at Southampton. You just saw these players that were young coming through. Lallana was another one. Dean Ashton was at the time at Crew. These young players that, I mean, Darren Bent at Ipswich, young players that had real, real quality that you just did not see in League One and League Two. But in the Championship, really, really stood out. And the teams that were, I remember playing against Leeds and, you know, half their you know, team were ex-Premier League players and more Premier League teams were dropping into the championship. So that the golfing class and quality was a massive difference. Mistakes you'd make in League One may take four or five chances for a striker to take. In the championship, it'll be one or two chances that, that we need to, to, to sort of amend a mistake, really. So I'd say that's the, the, probably the biggest differences in terms of championship, League One and League Two. And in terms of your career, you, you've won the playoffs, but you've also won the league titles. First of all, on, on league titles, to win any league, you have to be very consistent. It's a marathon, not a sprint, as the cliche suggests. What's it like when you win the title with all your work for the season compared to the roller coaster of those playoffs? Yeah, the, the, the league ones, it, I've been fortunate to win league titles and I've been fortunate to win a playoff and... They always say it's better to go up via the playoffs, but it's the worst way to to go out as well, you know. But I think I think the play I think the league thing's different because if you win if you win the league, you can either win it in front of your fans and you celebrate there, and then you, and it's almost like the club community is with you that you know. Elder who makes the tea in the tea room, she's there to celebrate when you go through and see her. And, the, you know, John who opens the doors for you when you arrive at the ground and stuff. It's that kind of family thing that you can celebrate with everyone. And if you win the league away from home, then you know you're going to have a, a celebration coming home if you, you know, when, when you win the league. So I think that's a, a different thing that, you know, you've got more of your, the, the people that work at the club can celebrate it with you. Whereas I think the playoffs, um, You've got all your friends and family that go down and watch you. But when you win, you can't really go and celebrate with them because you're on the pitch celebrating. Then you have to go off and then you're on the team bus and then you're back to the hotel, which, you know, you meet your friends and family afterwards. So, but you don't get that experience of either playing at Wembley, but it was the Millennium Stadium when I, when I was playing down there. So they're, they're, that's the way that I saw the promotions in terms of winning the league and, and being promoted that, you could kind of celebrate it with everybody when you win a league at home. Um, and then if you win the playoffs, it's more the celebration is with the team. You do celebrate with the fans, don't get me wrong, but it's more more with the team um, afterwards. So that that's probably what it is. But it's but then it's just it's just a great experience because you play in front of a bigger crowd and you play in, it's just that one game which is a real nail biter and to win it is is amazing. I'm fortunate enough to have only had the one experience and won it. So um, I've no I know people that have lost it, and it, it's a real hard pill to swallow. Whenever I've done 
media work afterwards. So I always notice the teams that struggle at the start of the season after losing a playoff final. I kind of can understand that. And I always mention that in my, my commentating or whatever I do. It's the hardest game to recover from. If it's into the Premier League or, you know, I do the National League, not winning that and getting Football League. It's a really hard game to recover from if you lose it. And in terms of winning the, the playoff final, you go back into that championship and attention is really on you in the sense that there's lots of clubs interested. Obviously, in the end, Celtic are the club you go to. What was that period like for you and, and how did you handle it when there was lots of interest in yourself? I, 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 was, I was always very level-headed. And, you know, I mentioned about my debut. I was still doing the jobs in the dressing room before, before the game. And I, I always remember... When I played games when I was 17, 18, I would still be on the bus making teas and coffees and just still carry on as normal. I'd never really get above my station or, you know, I never really flaunt what I've done or who I've played with or, you know, whatever, really. It's just kind of that's that's who I am. I've kind of had grounded parents at the same time. And, you know, I always know in football, any, you, you link with stuff all the time, you know, you on Google now you get your Google alerts and you know clubs are linked with every single I mean I've got a nine-year-old who spurs a link with everybody comes running through and I'm just like just just hold fire you know until until it's actually done don't don't get too excited so I I was never really I was never really fated I think because I was just I was happy where I was and I was almost like what will be will be if if a club comes in for me then great but then if it doesn't I, I was I was happy where I was and you know even if the Celtic deal if they were coming for me and the club was saying, no, I was never really going to be a person to, you know, spit my, my toys out the pram and go on strike or be a nuisance in training. I'll just carry on as normal, really. So it, it's nice, but I think it's, I think football can change so quickly. And I think I was always aware of that, that one minute you can get praise and you're seen as a great player. Then you go to a club for a year and, and you're seen as not very good. And that's, and that's the balance of football that, that can change very, very quickly. So, I was always very level-headed, and I think what I think what helped me the most was my friends that I grew up with were so they just treated me like everybody else, and I think that was really important. If I went for a drink with them in the pub after the game, I kind of sat in the corner and I didn't really, you know, people wanted to talk to me fine, but I never really went in there. There are people that go out who think they're it and make themselves known and stuff. I was never really like that, and I think my friends were always kind of, you know, they kept me grounded as well, really. So the interest was always good, but until you know, you sat down with the manager and they're saying you're off. Then you, you just take you just take it with a pinch of salt. And if something happens, it does. If it doesn't, then you, you just carry on playing. And in terms of the Celtic interest and the move to Celtic, were you aware of just how big a club Celtic were before you joined them? Yeah, I was. I mean, I, well, I kind of followed Celtic anyway when I when I was younger. My brother had this VCR for the younger. It's like a tape player of. Um, the 1988 season, the centenary year where they won the double. And I just remember watching that. And I was always fascinated with the, the green and white hoops. I was fascinated, strange things that they didn't have numbers on the back of their shirt, but only on their shorts. Um, and I just love, for some reason, I don't know why, I just remember the Scottish crowd had this unbelievable roar, which I never really heard in England when, when teams, especially when Celtic scored. And I, I was just fascinated with the, you know the the crest of the badge and the CR Smith at the time across the across the front. Uh, I just love I just love the kit and um, I remember watching that video and being in awe of 
of Celtic. And I always kind of, you know, kept an eye on them and, and kind of followed them really. But I don't think anything prepares you for what how big that football club is. And it, it, it annoys me when people don't call Celtic a big club or Rangers to, to you know, throw them in there as well. I think Aberdeen's a big club, you know, Hearts as well. They're, I don't think people realise. I think people sometimes look at the, the level of Scottish football and think it's a Mickey Mouse league. But I, I didn't realise until I got to Celtic how big the football club was. I think you have an idea when you watch the old firm and you watch those games, but until you've lived it and you've been there, I, I can't explain how big the football club is in terms of the scale. And, you know, you look at, you know, I look at Arsenal and, and, and Tottenham and, and Man United, but when you are a player in that club and you walk into Glasgow being a Celtic player, it's no different from a Man United player walking into the centre of Manchester. You are recognised and people either love you or love you. Um, the crowd that you, you know, 65,000 every week. And I think for, for me, I always made the joke that, you know, the guys went to work not to pay their mortgages, but to pay for their season tickets. That's the kind of the, the way that they, they took Scottish football so seriously. And um, it's a huge club. You know, to win a European Cup is always you know, put you on that pedestal. Um, but I, I had no idea. I, I thought I thought I knew, but until I went there, I I, I didn't quite realise. And in terms of Gordon Strachan, what was he like when, when you got there? Because he's he's an interesting character, and I imagine going into that Celtic dressing room with the big characters that you had in the dressing room, the current manager, Neil Lennon, for one, would have been interesting enough. But with Gordon as the manager, I imagine it made it even more so. Yeah, I mean, Gordon was, you know, I, I spoke to him going up and, um, you know, him and I had a bit of an up and down relationship in terms of when when I went, um, the, the backstory was I lost my father six months before I, I moved to Celtic and I was um and ahhing about going anyway. When when Mark told me that I was I was going, I said no to it twice. I, I did say no, I, I was happy where I was and I just felt, you know, one, I, I'd only lost my dad and I'd already lost my mum when I was, so, you know, going through that period of losing both parents, you know, they've both gone and I kind of just wanted to, it's, it's a huge move anyway at that time. And I just remember talking to Gordon and speaking to him and I was just like, the money side of it was never, was never even brought into question. You know, that was never even a prerogative of, okay, I'll go out there, earn a few quid and then I'll come home. And that was never, never my option. My, my option was that I was scared that I wasn't going to play enough. And I remember speaking to him and he promised me that I'd go in there as a right back and then play centre half. And I looked to him and I said, you promised me that? And he went, I, I, I promise. And I was just like, well, I'll be an idiot then to turn it down. Um, and I went up there and it was, it, it, it was a mad move because it happened very, very quickly. And to go into the dressing room with, you know, I, I, I respect the people at Brighton, but when you go into a dressing room with Premier League, you know, Chris Sutton had won the Premier League, Neil Lennon had won the League Cup with Leicester, Alan Thompson, John Hartson, um, big, big name players. And then he's still got Stillian that was there and Aidan McGeady and these youngsters of Stephen Pearson, David Marshall. Um, it, it was a massive dressing room of characters that um, looked after me. You know, they, 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 were, they were great with me in, in terms of, of going in there, but it, it was daunting. You know, you can't not be daunted to go into a dressing room with winners and 
after Celtic had just lost the league the season before. Um, they, they wanted to get it back. and um, But they, they, they were great. You know, Gordon's an interesting character. I think, you know, on the TV, he comes across as a, as a personality, but he's quite a, a shy guy deep down. He's, when you speak to him on a one-to-one basis, he's, he's very, very nervous and he doesn't have that interaction with you. But when he goes into the media, people find him very, very funny and, 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 and very, very um, find his interviews um, interesting watch. But what I will say about him is he's a fantastic coach. He's, he's a very, very good coach. And um, a lot of what I do now in terms of my coaching is what I learned from him. Um, and I remember when he got the Scotland job, I thought that's a great job for him because he can coach players. And I thought, and that's a big thing. And his attention to detail was, was very, very good. Um, and his record speaks for itself up there. You know, he's, he's, probably did better than Martin O'Neill. But I think he always had this Marmite uh, relationship with the, with the fans, where I don't think Martin had that. I think if you spoke to a Celtic fan, I don't think many of them would have a bad word to say about Martin. Speak to Celtic fans about Gordon. Some will love him. Some will find him that they didn't like him. Um, but that, that was sometimes the way he was. And in terms of yourself, you had a couple of niggly injuries as you go in there. Is that something that when you join a club that Celtic that really can in a strange way sort of define you from the get-go in the sense that if you go in and you're playing catch-up it's just hard to get back in? Yeah I mean it, it, I, I went I had a knee I, I had a knee operation over the summer um, and I knew going in there I'd probably miss a month of the season I, and I remember we, we played a pre-season game against Porto and I remember Craig Beatty playing right back at the, that, that night. And I just remember sitting there watching, thinking, that should be me. And then you then all of a sudden get four or five pre-season games under your belt. And then you're, you're off and underway. But I, I'd miss pre-season. And the way that I was, I had to train to keep fit. You know, I wasn't like a Stephen Pearson where he could have a year off and still get 18-5 on the bleep test. He, you know, I, I just didn't I had to train all the time. And, Missing the first month and even just getting back into training, I wasn't used to the pace, the the quality to to a certain extent. Um, so I, I felt that I was always playing catch up when when I first came back in, and then when you're playing catch up, and then you're thrown on up front, and then you start a game centre midfield, and then you play centre half, and then you play right back, and then you come on again up front, and then you play another game centre half you can't get any stability in the side and you can't get any, any real momentum going. And you want to make a good impression. But when you're getting minutes here and there and it's always been out of position and I'm not... The, the thing that killed me was that I think Gordon was using me as a utility player and, you know, bring me on up front. I, I was never... A, I, had, I had a one-off season at Brighton as a striker and I did well. But when you go into that level of Celtic, I was nowhere near good enough to be a striker for that football club, but he kept bringing me on up front. And I just, I think it just really hampered my momentum of just trying to gain a place in the team. And, um, and I, I just, yeah, I think playing catch up and then just constantly playing in different positions. I mean, you imagine, you know, Shane Duffy going to Celtic now, like he's done, like I did. And he plays his first game centre midfield. And then Lenny plays him up front for 20 minutes. And then he plays, you're never going to settle within a football club. And I think that just, hindered my progress 
of, of just getting any stability of first team football or any real momentum of games going. You know, if I played 10 games on the trot at centre half, then, you know, you judge me after that. But I just didn't get that opportunity. And in terms of the promises that Gordon made about the fact you were going to come up, you were going to play right back and then you were going to move to centre back. Did that cause, you mentioned your relationship with him. Did the fact that he was using you as that utility player cause issues with you at that time? Because you're thinking, look, you, you said when I moved up here, I'd be right back or centre back. Well, what's going on here? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I many, you know, after by October, I, I was I was knocking on his door saying, you know, what the hell's going on? I think the thing that killed me a little bit was that I remember that season, I think we lost away to Rangers and then we went on a massive run of not being beaten. I think we lost one game at home to Dunfermline and, you know, we very rarely lost games and it was very difficult for me then to go in and knock on his door and say, why am I not playing? But it, 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 was, it was frustrating and I kind of did bring that back up to him. And then the, the season progresses on and he says to me, I know it's been frustrating so far, but come January, when, when Bobo goes to the African Cup of Nations, you're going to get your chance. And then the first game in January was against Clyde, and he played Dewey instead of me. And that, again, that just caused another, another rift in. And, I, that, and that, I think out of everything, that's the thing that pissed me off the most about everything that, that, that got, you know, he promised me right back, but I had an injury, and then Paul Telfer came in. Stephen McManus came from nowhere to, to start playing regularly. Um, Bobo almost left to go to Marseille, but then he ended up coming back. Um, there was all these little things that kind of worked against me to a certain extent. But then he said to me, come January, this is your chance. You'll play the whole, the whole of the month. And then if you play well, you just keep your place in the team. And if you don't play well, and I, and I said, fair enough. I said, I can't, I can't argue with that point that you've said now. Then the Clyde game came along and then that, that, that really annoyed me. And then that was really the start of the, the breakdown of him and I's relationship after that game. Another big character that comes in, you mentioned that Clyde game, Roy Keane. Just what was it like when he walks through the door? Well, I walked past him. I, felt, I, I, I walked past him. I, didn't, I, I was at an Oasis concert the night before um, at the SECC Centre and um, it, it came through that he had... So, there was rumours that he was coming in. Um, so I went into training the next morning and um, we kind of crossed each other going to the toilet. And I kind of walked past him. I, I thought he was about six foot four, kind of big, strong frame. He's about 5'10 and 12 stone. He, he's a tiny little figure and he's a tight. And I walked straight past him and then I kind of double checked him and then came back and said hello to me. And, um, and he, he was great. I mean, talk about, I played with two players in my career, Teddy Sheringham at Colchester and Roy Keane at Celtic. Two players that, to me, played at a world-class level within themselves and, and played for you know, world-class clubs as well. Um, but his, his attention to detail, I mean, he was the first in to train and he was the last one to leave. His attention to detail with diet was, was very impressive. His willingness to win. And I just, you know, you talk about those big characters that I went into. I just remember... Everybody was fearful of him um, when, he, when he walked in the dressing room, talking about John Hartson and all that lot. They, they were really, really fearful of him. And I remember that first training session, everybody was so scared of passing in the ball. <laughs> they made a mistake. They were worried that he was going to go at you and things like that. And the more I learned about him was 
because he came in after the Manchester United interview um, that he supposedly criticised a lot of players. And I think, I think what I found with him was, because we all thought, blimey, if he's having to go to Man United, like, bloody hell, what's he going to say about us kind of thing? But I think he always thinks if, if you do well at what you're good at, then I don't think he'll ever have an issue. I think it's people that should be doing better and were not fulfilling their potential. And I think that's the way I came away um, afterwards with Roy. But I, I got to know him really, really well. I mean, he lived around the corner from me. A um, few occasions, he would come around to, to my place and we'd watch football together. And, you know, he would text me and we'll go out for dinner. And I actually got to know him really, really well. And I got to see a different side of him. Um, family guy, um, just, just obsessed with football and obsessed with winning and obsessed with professionalism. Um, it was just a shame that we just didn't get to see the best of him um, up there. But, you know, it was a great, exciting time for the football club to sign him. And um, I, remember, I remember one game he played against Rangers and I remember that week he was taking a load of painkillers um, with his hip. And I went up to him and I was like, you, you okay? He went, no, I'm fine. And he was reading the, the build-up against him and Barry Ferguson that week. And he, and he was so, you know, he kept saying, you know, Barry Ferguson, they're talking about him being better than me and stuff. Like that. And he goes, I'm going to show them. And we played away and he was, we won one nil. I think John scored the winner, but he was phenomenal. And he, he probably could walk for three weeks afterwards after the painkiller stopped kicking in. But I saw that game and um, he, he was just a great, great footballer. And I never lose that quality. You lose a bit of pace and of course you do, but the quality on the ball was exceptional. And um, I enjoy seeing him on the box. He's, that's that's what he's like, you know. He's, he is what he is, and he says what he thinks. And um, and uh, you know, I talk about pe being honest with yourselves because people knew what he was like as a player. They know he's going to be like that as a pundit. Um, but a, a great guy, and I've only really got good things to say about him, to be honest. A lot of people think, as you mentioned earlier, that he's going to be a ranter and a raver. But from people that I've spoken to, said that in the dressing room he could actually be quite quiet. He was really quiet. Um, whether or not. He went up there and thought, there's no point in me kind of ruffling the feathers now with six months to go of my career. Um, but he was, I think the one thing, he was tough on the youngsters in a way that he wouldn't, you know, he never effed and blind at anybody. When we, not even after the Clyde game, he, ne he didn't even say anything, you know. I think he was more annoyed with the senior pros at that, um, after that day, more than me and Sean and... Piero and Aiden, you know, I think he's. I think he saw that game of the senior pros let them down, and I think he let he let them know in his own way, to a certain extent. Um, but he was great with the youngsters. He was always willingness on and making sure that we we're doing our extras after training, and you know, the gym was a really really important factor of that. So you could see why he was a great leader. Um, and for, you know. I was only with him for, th for six months, but it was it was a really really enjoyable experience to to learn a lot under him. One of the games in your Celtic career that I know gets mentioned quite a lot for yourself, but the game I want to mention again just to get your perspective: the Motherwell game where your man of the match, you put in a standout performance. Was that the day you thought was going to be the beginning, really, of your Celtic career? Yeah, because it was the game after the Clyde game, so I was I, w I was fuming with. With, with Gordon, I, I remember we trained on the Thursday, we were playing Clyde on the Sunday, I think it was, or we trained on the Friday anyway, and I, he, he did a one to 11, and I wasn't, I, 
I knew that you could just clearly te- could tell that that was the team. You just knew it was the team. Um, and I, I was really annoyed with him. And I bit my lip. So it was wrong of me to go in before the game. And, but I had to. I, I had to go and see him because it was so, so disappointing. Um, and I, I, I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder. And I remember training the week after. And because and, he bought Dewey off at half-time, I think I would have just walked out of the club if he hadn't started me in that game. And um, and I, I kind of been in the background saying I need an opportunity, I need a chance, and and this was my chance. And unfortunately, you think I, I don't. I, I I always felt after the Clyde game, I I always felt that I had like one or two games like to to prove myself. I didn't feel that I was ever going to get a run in the team of five or six games or the ten games that I was after. Um, but you know, the opportunity came around. I think Steve was was uh, injured. I think Bobo was away on African Cup of Nations. So it was Stan and myself, Stan Varga and myself. I remember Mo Camera coming in, a left back. So I think three of the four, Paul Telfer was there. So it was, it was, a, it was a mixed back four. Um, and I was, you know, I was really pumped for the game. I knew that there was a lot on, you know, I think people wanted to see what, what I was all about. And... Um, and I, you know, thankfully I, I had a really, really good game, and um, I, I did think after that 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 was going to be the start of the opportunity that I was after. I mean, to to get man of the match in one game, and by the third game you're dropped again from the squad, like from the squads. You know, I can't, I can't get my head around that. Still, to to, to a certain extent, sometimes. So I, I, I felt I had a good game. You know, we won the game really well, and I just remember. Hearing, you know, I never read the papers afterwards, even though it was everywhere. And but you kind of felt that the fans sort of finally saw what what Gordon had seen in me. Um, it was just unfortunate that I just couldn't get that run of the team going forward. But you know, while while it lasted, it was a, a good game and a couple of tackles on Jim Hamilton, which I think people remember as well. Um, which I say the pictures that I've been sent of it, it's always quite funny sometimes. But um, I just wish I'd have had more of those games for the football club. And come the end of that season, because of the frustrations that you'd had, was it just a case of you saying, right, I need to get out of here and play games? Yeah, it signed Gary Cordwell in January from Hibs on a free. So I knew then that, you know, it was always going to be harder to, to come through. I remember Charlie Mulgrew was kind of coming through the ranks a little bit and Darren O'Day was then coming through as well. And, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not stupid. You know, I kind of realised, but I, I think the one thing I did do was I went away that summer, um, and I remember going to Portugal and I I got myself a personal trainer to to go out there and I came back as fit as I'd ever been. I was as lean as I ever was. I I was, I I think I had about three days off and I was just constantly training over the summer and I thought I'm going to come back and be in the best shape as I could be. And I remember going to Switzerland and. Um, and training and doing really well out there, all the tests that they do. And I, I was training really well. Then we went to America. Um, and then, I, I, again, he just put me back up front. I remember playing a game against New England and I got concussion in that game and I played up front. And then I just remember um, we played um, DC United in Washington. Um, I don't know if you remember a player called Freddie Adu, who was yeah. a striker that was coming through at the time and um, we'd lost the game 4-1 and I because I played against New England I didn't play against Washington 
but we were training at Harvard University and we were training the next day. It was about 104 degrees. It was boiling hot. And he ran us the next day. He was so annoyed that we had lost 4-1 um, and he'd ran us. And, um, and I remember coming in afterwards and we had a big meeting in the middle of the pitch and he was screaming and shouting and stuff. And I always remember he said this. He went, he said, uh, when Celtic lose, it goes around the world. Everybody knows when Celtic lose. And the MLS is not what it is today, but we'd almost lost to a part-time side. He goes, and you lot losing to this team is an embarrassment. And he just went, it's not like someone like Brighton losing a game where no one gives a toss about like that. And everyone was just like, it was just an odd thing to say. And I don't know if that was a dig at me or I just thought it was a really odd thing to say. And I just went up to him afterwards and just said, what was that all about? And he went, what? He's kind of, what? And I just said, mentioning it, if Brian lose, it doesn't matter. And he went, oh, I didn't mean it like that. And I kind of said to him, no, actually, it does matter when Brian lose because players are on not much money and a win bonus can almost pay for their mortgage. You know, I kind of went off at him again. And I just remember the way that, you know, the way that he's treated me. And I remember Stan Petrov when he was leaving that summer to go to Villa. He was kicking up a stint on the bus. He was mucking around in training. And, and I just felt that I never did any of that. But Gordon still didn't really, you know, just still treated Stan exactly the same. And I just remember after that, I, I'd, I'd almost had enough, really. And I just kind of felt that he had let me down a lot from when I had that meeting with him in Brighton of what he had promised me, looking after me, the club looking after me, etc. He just kind of left me out, really. And then I went to, to Coventry for the year and then I came back and I remember training. He then announced the squad to go to America. I was the only one not going. And then he made me train with the kids. He made me come in at different times to the squads. And I thought by the end of it, I was just like, I didn't deserve any of this. And, you know, he may not remember much of it in terms of it. I mean, he's probably managed 100 players. But I just remember come the end, what did I do to deserve being left with the kids? Even though they were great, you know, Simon Ferry and all that lot, great, great bunch of lads. But making me come in at different times, um, you know, that I, I just felt that was completely wrong. I'd done nothing wrong to deserve any of that. And you know, I just kind of leave, it leaves a little bit of a bitter taste in your mouth that I, I tried my best. Unfortunately, it just didn't, it just didn't work out for me, um, my move. But the experience is one that I'll never forget. Um, the people that I met there um, and I still follow the club. You know, I still want them to do well. Lenny being manager, John Kennedy being there as well. You know, they're great, great people. And um, it, it was just a shame, though, because it wasn't it, it wasn't a good experience for me. But I'm trying to, you know, I've moved on since then. You know, lots happened since. and um, But it was just, I think people see the move and just kind of think that you're just a crap player and stuff like that. But when you actually add up all the, the, the evidence of what's happened, you kind of think, well... You, didn't really stand a chance of ever really making it or getting a chance there, really. But disappointing. But I'd, I'd be more um, frustrated if you turned around to me in this podcast and said to me, could have moved to Celtic and you said no and you retired at 29. I'd, I'd have been like, yeah, I know, tell me about it. I'm, I'll be gutted about it. So, um, you know, it, it was a difficult experience, but, you know, one that probably taught me a lot more going forward in my career if I hadn't had that experience. See, in terms of his man management style and how obviously that situation occurred with you, is that why you think at times he'd an awkward 
situation with Aidan McGeady and Arthur Boric and, and those two together because it seemed as if his relationship with certain players, you've given your example, he, he could get on with some players really well, but at times, like McGeady, yourself, he would just for whatever reason react a different way. Yeah, it's, I think I think that the Aidan example was that the thing with Aidan was that I, I just him and Gordon just didn't see eye to eye. Um, but I think the frustrating thing for him was I think Aidan started the second season really well. I think Gordon was trying to move him out of the club, but he couldn't because he was playing so well. And Aidan's an intelligent guy. And I think Gordon found it difficult to, to, to communicate because Aidan was very clever at chatting back to him quite quickly and he knew what to say. And I was the same with him as well. Arthur was, I think, just trying to manage him full stop was just a hard thing to do. You know, he, he was just one of a kind. Um, Arthur, same with Tommy Gravison. Um, but then there'll be other players that he, you know, he could just put an arm around and he could, I, I think he liked people that, just got on with it and didn't really give him too much aggro where I think some of us would say stuff back to him and confront him and sort of say, well, hold on a minute. You said this and you're doing that. And I think he found that very, very difficult. But I said his man management skills was, was a lot different to what I thought it was, especially in the in a confrontation side. He just didn't like that at all. And when you spoke to him, you'd want to look him in the eye and you'd be kind of looking down at the table and... I remember the first time I met him, he, was, he didn't really know where to look. He was kind of looking around and I found that really interesting that he just couldn't look me in the eye and and just talk to me. When you, someone like Ian Dowie, for instance, shakes your hand every single day, talks to you to your face, says you how it is and sometimes that's the best way to be really. But I think Gordon just kind of liked the players that just kind of got on and I think, you know, the way that they released John out of his contract when he went to West Brom, John, he didn't have the heart to call John and say, you're off. John found out in Spain. I know I know John and I know that's how he found out. Um, the way that he got Sati out of the club, it was just kind of bad, really. Rather than just sitting there just saying, look, I need to bring my own identity of players through and you're not that. He didn't quite do it like that. He always did it in a, in a different kind of way of behind people's backs sometimes. You mentioned Colchester earlier, earlier and, and the fact that Teddy Sheringham was there. Now, I've got to hold my hands up and admit that I'm a massive Teddy Sheringham fan. He's a player who, when you watch Premier League years or Premier League icons, every time it's the Teddy Sheringham episode, I just, I always put it on. What was it like at that stage of his career, especially in and around Colchester? Because he'd won the Champions League at Man United, Spurs icon. Was he down to earth and did he mix in? What was he like? He, he was he was great. I mean, I was a Tottenham fan, so I, I never really get in awe of people when I see them. But I remember the first day, I couldn't take my eyes off him in the dressing room. He would like I'd just be constantly looking over at him, and he probably thought I'd, I fancied him or something because I just couldn't I couldn't stop looking at him. I was just so I was like, oh my god, it's Terry, Teddy Sheringham, and um, I, I I was just fascinated by the guy, and I got I got to know him really well. He, he's a really good golfer, so you kind of got to spend more time with him. It's just his professionalism, and I think it got to that stage of his career of, um, you know, he knew he was playing with lesser players, and he was just trying to help players. And I, and I, I think when he went to Stevenage as manager, I think he found that very difficult to then coach players of a much less ability when he could do it so well in his prime and in his career. But you know, he annoyed the life out of me because he. 
Dyer was terrible, but he was lean. And I mean, you mentioned that Premier League icon thing. He looks fantastic in it. He looks like sharp and. Um, but he, he was he, he just mixed in with the lads brilliantly, and um, you know he was always one to to pay for a night out. Sometimes if we used to go out as a group, he'd always put his car behind the bar and cover the night. Really, he, he was just a, a sound, sound guy. And sometimes you meet your heroes, and they're not always what they're made out to be. You know, sometimes they always say never meet your hero, but you know he was he was great. Um, joined in as one of the lads. Great banter. Um, but just an exceptional footballer. I mean, his touch was just, it was like Mozart. It was just, you could see that, you know, his, his, the pace wasn't there anymore, but his his finishing was incredible. Um, and it's just professionalism at 42 to keep going, to keep training every day. I mean, he never asked for a day off. You know, he still trained. And I mean, the manager looked after him, but, you know, he was always... If he had a day off, he was in the gym doing something. You know, he was always um, one of the lads and a, a great, great guy. Um, just a just a genuine down-to-earth guy. And, you know, when I bump into him now, he, he's great. Um, I, I try and get his golf in when I can, but I haven't seen him for a little while. Um, but, yeah, just just a great, great all-round guy, but an unbelievable footballer. If you think there's players that you play with and you just think you just can't imagine actually how good they were in their prime. Roy was one, Teddy was another. Um, but yeah, just a great guy who um, had a fantastic career. And I was just very, very lucky to, to you know, just to play one season with him. I always think with Teddy and, and, and again, I'm sure you'll vouch for this. You mentioned the fact he never had great pace or explosive pace, but he always seemed to just be able to create space for himself. And it's one of those things that when you watch a guy like him, you just think, how on earth can you do that? Despite the fact he's not the quickest, he always seemed to have time on the ball and he never had to rush. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we say in coaching now, sometimes the best moving is standing still. You know, you get players that run here, there and everywhere, um, run the channels and, you know, Kenny Miller was one. I remember playing with Kenny. He was just like constantly running all the time and sometimes he wasn't in the right position. He's a good goal scorer, don't get me wrong, but I'm trying to make that analogy where it was literally a yard that he'd make in space but he'll get in areas when, when you coach as a defender, you always say defenders don't want to go into that area. And he was just very cute of just being on that line of should I go, shouldn't I go? Um, but he just had a great touch. Um, and it, just the, the vision of just around him was, was exceptional. And, and I think what he loved about, what I loved about him most, and I can see why Shearer loved playing with him. I can see why Klinsman loved playing with him. I can see why the Man United boys loved it with him was that he just loved occupying the edge of the 18-yard box. And I remember Gary Lineker talking about Peter Beardsley. It's almost like there's certain players in your career that just he loves setting up goals. He loves scoring goals. Don't get me wrong. But he just had that awareness to bring people into play. Um, and he enjoyed doing that. And that's a great sight. It's like the holding midfielder to break up play and and do the dirty side that you see a lot more in a holding midfielder. But then on the other side, in the final third, he was a player that just loved getting on the ball, loved scoring goals, but he was just one so unselfish, just loved putting a ball on the plate for somebody to, you know, to, to get a goal or, or to create a cross or something. But yeah, technically, I don't think he gets anywhere near the credit he deserves. He was just a, a phenomenal player that, you know, still scoring goals at, at 42. 
you returned to, to Brighton for your second spell and you mentioned the fact that at times you were a striker at Brighton and, and Gordon had tried that with you. Well, when you returned, you were a goal machine in the first few games, three goals in two games. What a start. Yeah, it was, yeah. I mean, I, I went back and um, played away at Crew first game and got a goal. Then I played Barnet in the League Cup on the Tuesday and scored two. Um, so I think at one stage I was a top scorer in England after, after two <laughs> games, but yeah, that, 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 that quickly dried up uh, very, very quickly come the end of August. But uh, yeah, you, you go back to a club and they always say never go back. And, you know, they always, you know, it's, it's probably going to be like when Bale goes back to Tottenham. It's, people are going to expect the same things and sometimes you get it and sometimes you don't. Um, but it was important for me just to get off to a good start and, you know, scoring a goal on your return, on your debut is um, always very, very important. Um, but yeah, no, I, I started that season really, really well. Um, it was just a shame that we, ju we just didn't quite click as a squad and, you know, Mickey ended up losing his job, which was um, very, very unfortunate. Because at that stage, when you're young and managers lose jobs, you're to be honest, you, you don't really think about the consequences. You're just on to the next one. But I think when you're older and you get to know someone, I took that sack in a lot harder because I felt responsibility for it. And he's not a mate. He was a mate, but he wasn't a mate. But I just kind of, I, I just felt the burden of, I think I not could have done more, but, you know, when managers always get stacked, players, players always look at themselves and think, yeah, I, I could have done more. I didn't play as well for him as I should have done. And um, that, that's just the way it was. But, it, yeah, it was a great start coming back, getting those three early goals. And, um, you know, we had a good start to the season. But unfortunately, it just kind of faded away a little bit and, um, and, and Mickey losing his job. I always wonder what it's like for a, a professional when you're coming towards the end of your career. I've heard Paul Merson use the description of your head still knows what it wants to do, but the body just can't react as quickly. Did you find that as you were coming towards the end? And if so... How do you prepare for life after football, especially when you're in your last few months and years? Yeah, I, th I think the, the analogy that Merce is using there is a bit like when you're older, you, your mind's still thinking, but your body's not. In my situation, it was my knee injury that I, I just, you know, I remember listening to Michael Owen when he had his injuries. You kind of, you want to do it, but then you're too scared to to make that move and, and, and to put yourself into that situation, really. But it was... Um, I, you know, my, my knee had blown up at Bristol Rovers and I'd, I'd spent almost a year out and then I came back and it was never the same. And it was just, it was, it was difficult because I, was, I signed a two-year contract down there. And so 24 months, I was injured 18 months of them really. And, you know, I probably played, I think I played 20 odd games down there. I reckon 18 of them, I wasn't fit, you know, with my knee injury and things. Um, so it it's hard because you kind of, especially when you're injured and you get it taken away from you very, very quickly, especially at 29, what I was, um, it, it's very hard because you can kind of prepare yourself, but you need that little bit of luck in the next life in terms of what you go on to, to, to make sure that it's right. But players find it very, very difficult to adapt to football, uh, to life after football, because unfortunately, like I see with all the army boys, nothing prepares you for it. There's, there's no counselling or any kind of training to say, right, this is what the real world's like. You kind of live in a little bubble. Um, some people go on and earn fantastic money. Some people lose their money. Some people mis misuse their money and have to almost start again, really. So it's, um, it, I can understand why footballers find it very, very difficult to finish. Um, and I don't think 
people sometimes give them sympathy enough because they just think not everybody earns a Premier League wage. If a League Two player finishes, they have to go back to work. It's it's just the way the life is. But when you when you all your qualifications is football, and you try and go and get another job that's not football, it, it's very very difficult. And um, I, I I was very very lucky to to fall into the job that I went into. Um, I wouldn't know how to answer the question if I was going into a state agency or being a cabbie or whatever, really. I've, I've just been very, very lucky um, that I've gone into the media. Um, and, you know, I, I, every game I get, I'm, I'm, I got to a stage playing football that it was just another game and I just do another game. When I do the media work now, every game I just kind of, I, I make the most of it, you know, because I just know career's gone. But this is also the next the next best thing for me is to, is to do this and um but it is it's a difficult transition but i was very very lucky that i was given the opportunity when i got given that opportunity i've worked hard to keep it because i knew that i had to but i i, I you know i'm, I'm I, I was lucky because i knew grant from my brother knew him from school grant best who was the head of bt the year i retired was the year that bt started up so time in was lucky um so I'm, I'm very very grateful and i think that's why i, I appreciate doing the media work because I, I dread to think what where i'd be now if if i didn't have that opportunity a few quick fire questions before i let you go and again thanks for your time first one being best players you've played with i, I was lucky at brighton to to play with bobby zamora he was um just a goal machine in league two and league one um you kind of knew there and then that he was kind of too good for us and he was going to go on and, and do great things. Um, he's a, he, I think in my early career, he was he was probably the best. I think when I went to Celtic, I think Nakamura, Sensuke Nakamura was unbelievable. Um, I've, I've never seen anyone with the quality of ball, or, uh, quality of passing, free kick taking was just phenomenal of, of all sense um i think if, if, if someone says to me name the best player and i've said it for, for years for me it was aiden aiden mcgeady was the best player that i ever played with um quick could run with the ball left and right foot good cross on him um got goals in him as well um just just a great all-round player um i couldn't believe how good he was when I played with him in training. Um, but, you know, Stan Petrov was another one. Um, John Hartson was good. But then I played with, like, Don Hutchinson at Coventry. Um, but for, but I think for me, if I had to name one, it would probably be Aiden. Toughest direct opponents? I played, as I mentioned, Dean Ashton um, when, I was, when I was at Brighton. Um, he was very, very good. Played against Gareth Bale when he was at Southampton. Um, Ricky Lambert was always difficult to play against when he, when 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 I was um, I was doing that. But I think the one those players were good to play against. The one game I still have nightmares about when I played against Palace and I marked Wayne Routledge. He was just he was just at that stage where he he was just um, good two feet, cut and go on the outside. Um, but I'd probably say Dean Ashton was the best. He, he, unfortunately, the, the injuries just hampered his career. I think he could have gone on and had a very, very successful, even though he still had a good career. But, but for me, he was, um, 
probably the best player that I I played against. I'm, I'm probably missing someone out, but he but the one off the top of my head would probably be him. Most underrated teammate. Um, most underrated teammate. Uh, it's a great question. Um, under underestimated teammate. David Marshall. I think he was um, at the time. I just remember feeling sorry for him um, when Arthur came in. I thought Marshy was an exceptional goalkeeper um, who I think I think he played the Motherwell game when we drew 4-4. Um, may have played the Bratislava game, I'm not sure, but it was, it was um, and I just couldn't believe that, you know, a goalie of that quality was not being snapped up um, by, a, by a Premier League side. Um, but yeah, probably him off the top of my head. I think he was, he he was he was one. Um, Craig Beatty was another one. I remember Beats being a an underrated player at Celtic. I remember him once. I think the first season I was there, we was having to wait for Magic and John to get injured. But I think when he played, he was um, he, he was he was a good goal scorer. Um, but yeah, that, that, those two off the top of my head are who I can think of. Craziest teammate and why? Craziest. Tommy Gravison was probably the one. Um, he, he was just him. Him and Arta were two of a kind. Um, Arta just—he he was just like a an assassin. He had the eyes of a, an assassin. He, he could just—he he was just nuts. I mean, all goalkeepers are nuts anyway at the best of times. But I think Tommy Gravison was by far the the. Just he was just nuts. Um, I remember him. We we had a pool table at Celtic, and he 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 started playing, and he just kept losing every single time, and he was getting more and more annoyed. And I, it was like me. I think Simon Ferry was another one. Um, S Stephen Pearson and Aiden, and he called everyone lie. and he kind of he came back in on the Monday. So we gave him a point. He went nala. He goes, I'm gonna have a little rest. A week went on, and we said to him again, Are "You playing with Nala?" He goes, "It's all in the plan. It's all in the plan. I've got a plan. I've got a plan." And we were like, "It's only a game of pool." And he went, "Nala, Nala, not yet. Time to tell." Three weeks later, he goes, "Plan's almost going to work soon. You'll know soon about it. You'll know soon." Came into training, and it basically had a, a manufactured cue made for pool. So he came in it with a little box manufactured queue and he'd said he'd been having lessons every single day <laughs> to then beat us we then played him beat him and he just snapped the queue in half and he just went absolutely nuts he just snapped the queue in half and just, just kind of went off in a half and we never saw him play again and I remember coming out the ground once um, after a game when you come out of Celtic Park you go down the road and I used to go right to go home and the traffic there was mad and I just remember seeing him driving on the other side of the road. I remember being with Aidan McGeady and he was driving on the other side of the road to miss the traffic out to go that way. Because you had to turn right and then go around and come back on yourself. And he just remember going over the pavement, going on the other side of the road and just driving against the traffic. Honestly, he was nuts, honestly. And I'm sure if you meet, if, if you ever meet a Celtic, anyone who's played with him, you, you'll have stories about. I remember um, he used to go out of the porn star when he was at Celtic. And I remember reading the, the paper and I was reading through it and there's a double spread page in the middle of his girlfriend who had been with a few players 
in, in Holland. And I just remember reading it and I was just like, oh my God. He then says to me, pass us the paper like that. And I just went, oh my, so I gave him the paper and I just, I just left because I just you knew. And then he came downstairs five minutes later, just ranting and raving and just going absolutely apeshit. But love, lovely guy. He, he was a nice guy, but just, just a lunatic. Last question. Um, you've obviously got the academy as we, as we started with. You're working with young players, developing young players. What advice do you give to those players when it comes to long-term aspirations based on the career you've had? I, I always think with to, um, to the, the only person that will always fail you in your career is yourself. I think you, the, the, you've just got to be honest with yourself. Um, when, when you talk to young players and it's not, everything's not their fault and they blame everybody else. And I just remember thinking, but do you actually look at yourself sometimes and, and be the honest person and say, am I doing enough training? Am I doing enough extra work afterwards? Am I living right? Am I eating right? Am I sacrificing all these things? So when I, used, when I was younger and I used to train, my mindset sounds mad, but I remember we, I go to Spain every year and I remember going train. Like, so I'd go out at like one o'clock in the afternoon at the hottest time of the day, jumper, wet sweatsuit, hat. I used to run and just kill me. And I always used to think in my mind, is the person I'm playing against in my team, is he doing this or is he sitting on the beach? And, and kind of, I just always used to think like that. And you've got to be your own, own worst critic. And you've just got to take the ups and the downs as well. But for me, the main thing is, is you've just got to be honest with yourself. And if you look at yourself in the mirror and you say, right, am I doing this right? Am I doing that right? Then you look at other areas. But I guarantee you, if you look further down the line, there'll always be five different points. Am I living right? Am I sleeping right? Eating right? There'll always be two or three things. That if you really look at and you know that you're not doing them properly, you're not going to get very far. And you've got to work hard. You can't, nothing falls to you on a plate. Nothing anymore falls to you on the play. I know how hard it is to get into the pro game now. It's as hard as ever. You know, the opportunities are there, but it's hard. And you've got to work harder than you've ever done before and never, ever expected to fall to you on a plate. Talent's one thing. Talent can get you a long, long way. Work rate will always get you further. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song